reading and fasting and, uh, and, of, and of, I guess, shaping the rhythms of our life in a way that leads us toward growth in godliness. And so celebration of discipline, I love that title because oftentimes we think of discipline, you know, because it sometimes is hard and it requires much of us. It, we don't always have a positive attitude towards it. You know, being a disciplined person, you know, isn't, you know, the thing that we necessarily celebrate all the time. And sometimes we, uh, we need to be encouraged in a disciplined life. And that's what I want to do this morning is to challenge all of us. Often whatever the Lord's working on in me is sometimes what you get. So uh, the Lord's been working on me, so I'm going to work on you. And, uh, and pray that the Lord in, in meets us in the middle of it and works on all of us. But we're in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to the end, into the first. I'm just going to go to the first verse of chapter 6. Hear then the word of God. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles, the teachings of God. You need milk, not solid food or strong meat. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's still a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by a constant practice to distinguish good and evil. And therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to your word this morning because it is your word. And so we come to hear from you. We come for you to speak into our lives. We're not here, Father, to gather information. We are here to experience transformation under the power of your word and spirit. That what is here may take hold in our minds and in our hearts in such a way that our lives going forth would change, would take shape according to your word and your ways. Have your way among us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I watched the uh, Women's World Cup over the last number of, of uh, weeks and months. If you were paying attention, the women played and the Americans won. Uh, the World Cup, it's pretty impressive to watch athletes, world-class athletes at the peak of their game, you know, and in soccer, the whole game is running. If you watch, these ladies were running, you know, an hour and a half, the whole game, giving it their all in playing it, and not, not just then the, the endurance or the physical fitness that they exhibit, but the, the skills, the ball handling skills, some of them, you know, were bending it like Beckham. You know, some of them were, were wheel-kicking it like Pele um, and scoring goals in these ways. It's just the watch is, is awesome. They didn't, they didn't start a month before the World Cup, you know, training on these skills. And, and, you know, I think I'll run around the block a couple times and get ready, right? They, they've, been, they've been running since they were young, right? They've been practicing and building their skill set since they were young. These, these athletes don't get to where they are without a lifetime of, of discipline and training. And this is what Paul says, and he says it spiritually, but he can, compares his spiritual life this way to the life of an athlete. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24-7, when I get done, I'm going to ask you to leave it up there for a second. Paul writes and he says, don't you know, and you do, that in a race, all the runners are running. You think of a marathon or you think of, uh, you know, the Olympics, and all the runners are running, but only one of them wins. Only one of them gets the gold. 
says, you need to run like you're going to get gold, right? Run so that you may obtain that prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, right? It's the life of an athlete. They exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we do it for an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box like one who's beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. And the actual, the Greek's a bit harder. It says I actually, I beat my body and I make it my slave. Right? There's a language there, but to bring it in here, he says I discipline my body to keep it under control so that after having preached to others, I will not myself be disqualified so that I would run the race successfully like a winner. Right? But we see this, they say they do it to receive perishable wreath. What do they do? They exercise self-control in all things. And he says, and then we do it for an imperishable prize. We do what? We exercise control, self-discipline in all things. I train and discipline my body like an athlete does. Every Christian, he says, essentially is a spiritual athlete. That we're all supposed to be running like gold medalists. Spiritually speaking, in the, in the spiritual world, we, we are all, in the Christian life, he compares to this kind of a life, that, that you are, are becoming a spiritual athlete. And you need to go into training. And to get serious about the shape of your life, the rhythms and the habits of our lives need to be shaped around Jesus and his word in such a way that we're growing in wisdom and strength, like an athlete. Packer says there is the same relation to the goal of godliness, which is the goal of the Christian life, godliness in, in mind and heart and soul, as proper coaching and physical Training is to producing a player who is in full physical shape for the role that he's called to play. That there is the same kind of coaching and training and discipline that goes into making an athlete that he says goes into creating, in a sense, a godly life. We do it. We Christians do it. That is, we apply ourselves and discipline ourselves in all things we do it with the goal of a spiritual fitness and a godliness, a spiritual health and strength that leads to an imperishable crown of life. We do it because our, our, our sights are set high. So why does Paul urge this kind of discipline? And the answer is because spiritual fitness and spiritual maturity do not happen automatically. And sometimes I think that as believers, we think it will. If I just show up at church once a week, you know, 50 years from now, I'll be spiritually strong and mature. But reality is, and it's one of the things the church has wrestled with that the last 30 years or so, is saying that even, even a lot of the things that we're doing in the church, we're not producing disciples. We're not producing the kind of hardy, athletic disciples who, have, who are strong of mind and, and heart and, and life and godliness and service that, that the Bible describes. It doesn't happen automatically, just like you can't just to say, I'm going to get up tomorrow, I'm going to run around the block a few times and then go sign up for the marathon. You better start training. 
You need to train over a period of time. Hebrews, as I'm reading this text, Paul in the book of Hebrews, Paul, well, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he may be, is, is, is writing to the, these folks and unpacking some, some rich and deep uh, biblical theology. Read the book of Hebrews. He's, he's taking Old Testament, you need a depth of Old Testament understanding, and he's applying it to the, to the fulfillment that is in Christ, and, and how, does, how does Jesus in the Old Testament, how does Jesus and Moses, and Jesus and the angels, and Jesus in the covenant, and Jesus and all, all the sacrificial system, and Jesus and the, the priests of the Old Testament, and so you got all this Old Testament stuff that you need to know, and he's applying it to what Jesus has come and done and accomplished and become for us, and as he's in the middle of trying to teach him these things, he stops in verse 11, and there's this, this uh, interruption in the flow of his teaching, essentially to offer a parenthetical rebuke to the church. He's like, I'm trying to explain these things to you, and he pauses in his explanation to rebuke them, um, to rebuke them for their spiritual softness that makes it so hard for him to explain these things. Right? So he is saying, about these things we have much to say. I mean, he's been teaching through chapter 5, and about these things we have much to say, but it's hard to explain. Not because I don't know how to explain it, but he says, since you have become dull of hearing. Verses 11 and 12, you become dull of hearing. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be able to put some of this together for yourself and, and be explaining it to others by now. You know, not necessarily when he says teachers, not necessarily stand up doing what I'm doing, but, but the ability to, to take God's word and understand what it's saying and to interact with people and help them understand it. You ought to be teachers by now, but you still need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles. You need milk and not, again, solid food. The word there is actually a strong meat. You need milk and not meat, not tough meat, not steak, not strong meat. You need milk and not solid food. You ought to be mature. You, you ought to be mature in your understanding. You ought to be mature and in, in, in have some depth of, of spiritual maturity. You've received a great deal of training. It's not that they haven't received training. He said you need someone to teach you again, again the basics. It's not that they've not received training. It's that they've not progressed when they have received the training. They're not growing. I want to explain these things to you, he says, but, you're, but you become dull of hearing. The word dull there doesn't mean they're losing their hearing. The dull there means, is, literally means lazy. It means sluggish. You're lazy listeners, right? You, you listen, you know, you become those who become hearers of the word, not necessarily doers, those who listen to the word and then go home and forget what they've heard. You know, they read something, put the book down, go on to the next thing and turn the TV on. And you become lazy hearers. It's not that you're not getting enough teaching. In fact, we live in an age where there's more teaching available to the Christian church from so many avenues, from the highest and the best of teachers on the internet and in the books and everywhere else. We have one of the least mature Christian generations the world has produced. We become lazy, he says, you become lazy or sluggish of hearing. You're listening, but you're not applying it to yourself. The issue is not capacity to understand. He's not saying you guys aren't very smart. He's saying, no, in fact, that's the problem, is that they are smart. Like, they have the capacity, and that's why he's frustrated with them. Because it's not an issue of capacity, but of laziness. Not applying themselves to spiritual growth. They're not doing the hard work. They're not in theological and spiritual shape. 
Right? He's saying, theologically, I want, I want to talk to you about some things that are on the fourth floor. We got to take the stairs. And he's like, you know, I want to talk to you about some things. It's on the fourth floor. I mean, it's up there a little bit. So come with me. And he, and he starts up the stairs. And he looks back, and there's the church on the first landing. You know, and they can't make it. Like, Maybe I'll get to the second story, dude, but you're on your own. <clears throat> you know, he's just saying, I'm trying to, I want to, take you, I want to take you to the higher floors, but you're not able to go with me. You're not in the spiritual shape. I have things I want to explain to you, but you're dull of hearing. There's been plenty of teaching. You should have a solid foundation. I have to teach again the same things again because there's still no depth of understanding. You're still, he says, children. All right, verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. The word of righteousness in the context is he's teaching them Old Testament all, all the facets of the Old Testament uh, law and life and, and, and worship and, and the New Testament and Jesus and who he has done and who he is and what he has done. And so you're unskilled in the word of righteousness since you're still like a child, he says. You're still a child. You need milk and not solid food. We know those who are still on milk are physically immature. You know, a newborn baby, you don't start feeding them steak. They can't, they can't handle it. You, know, you feed, you know, the milk is for a baby, someone who's physically immature and unable to handle it. And those who are still on spiritual milk, making the comparison, are spiritually immature. They're spiritual children. They're like babies that don't have teeth to chew. Right? They haven't developed their teeth. Their teeth hasn't come in to chew real food. Right? They haven't, haven't developed that way. And so their whole system, they're still on milk. And for the author, this is a tragedy. Phillips, one of the commentators I was looking at, said the recipients of this letters are like many Christians today who think that theology is a waste of time. What difference does it make? Right? The question we often hear, what difference does it make? What difference does it make whether God is a trinity or not? And I got to think through, you know, those things. What, what difference does it make whether Christ's righteousness comes by imputation or by infusion? Some of you may not even know what those words mean. What difference does it make? It makes a big difference. (laughs) Whether regeneration comes before faith or after faith, and the list of things that go on. We we think that getting things, our biblical theology, getting what it says and what it teaches to us and what, what God has put before us and the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, and we think that getting these things biblically and theologically straight in our head is a pastime for people who've got nothing better to do which is where the church has sort of landed in recent days. That's for like spiritual athletes or something. Yes, it is. And you're a theologian. <laughs> and this is, this is the sad reality of the church. And for all of us, here's the deal is you're a theologian. The only question is, are you a good one or a bad one? Because we all are theologians. And we all have a system of belief. And there are places where the question is this, is it all fud, is it fuzzy and muddled and confused, or is it clear? It says they're still babies because they've not applied themselves, right? Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is still a child. In 14, but solid, uh, uh, solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice so that they're able to distinguish. And these things are clear for them. 
They're unskilled, he says, because you're hearing and not learning. You're hearing and not practicing. You're not, you're not assimilating what you're hearing in a disciplined way. You're not getting your, your heads and your hearts right so that they build new habits of life or building new habits of life so that you can get it straight in your head and your heart. You're not doing the work. Like an athlete who's being trained and coached, you know, you go to practice and the coach tells you how to do it and he tells you certain things and then instead of going home and practicing, you sleep in and watch TV and eat Little Debbie's, right? The athlete's not going to progress. It doesn't matter how often the coach tells him things or trains him or teaches him the basics of the game and this is how you do a bicycle kick if you want to score like that. He can tell him all day long, but if he goes home and sleeps in and watches TV and eats Little Debbie's, he's never going to do a bicycle kick successfully in a game. He's going, to have to, he's going to have to go practice hours and hours. There's no progress. There's no getting in shape. There's no building. And so in verse one, 1 of chapter 6, he says, let us go on. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Let us grow up. Let us grow strong. Let us get healthy and build an endurance so we can climb to the fifth floor, that we can climb to some, some heights. We want to be healthy, athletic believers. You know, we all, all of us, delight in the idea of a childlike faith. I don't know that there would be anyone who, who doesn't delight, even in, in our age, right? I'm 54, and you still delight to say, Jesus loves me, this I know. The Bible tells me how he died for me and for my salvation. And it's a, that simple faith of, of believing and trusting in Christ and what he has done, the very basic thing of the, of the Christian life, of what, how you become a Christian even. We delight in a childlike faith. And many times we're proud of that simplicity, that simple confession. And I agree that the gospel is foundational. And that we never move past it. And that we preach it to ourselves every day. Jesus loves me. This I know. I have to, I have to believe that every morning when I wake up or it's hard for me to follow hard after Jesus if I'm not sure he loves me. But the cross shows me his love. Right? He has loved me. So every day we never get past it. And so this kind of thing is, <clears throat> is foundational. And he says we need to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's not saying we leave it behind. It's not like we got off on the gospel exit and got a little gospel and then got back onto the road and then left it in the rearview mirror. He's not saying leave it behind in the sense of moving past it. He's saying leave it behind in the sense that you need to now build on it. And so the gospel is more like the foundation of a building. And so when you get that simple confession, that basic truth about Christ, you never move past it, and you better preach it to yourself every day, but you also need to build on it. Paul talks about building on it with gold, silver, and precious jewels, or hay, stubble, and wood, stuff that will burn and be useless. You got a foundation that's great. What are you building on it? That's what Paul's talking about here. What are you, what are you, the author's talking about here, what, what are you building on the foundation? Are you building a structure, and is it, I mean, you're all building. Is it hay, wood, and stubble? Or is it gold and silver and precious stone? You're building a palace, a temple. So we go on. The simple gospel is like the alphabet. <laughs> it's like the alphabet. We never leave the alphabet behind. How old are you when you learn the alphabet? I don't even remember. You're like three. When do you start telling your kid A, B, C, D? You know, they're like three, two, three, four in there. And when they get it, now I know my ABCs. 
this is awesome. But if he's in the 10th grade and all he knows is his ABCs, now, he never moves past them. We never move past them, right? They're the foundation. But, but we go on from learning the alphabet. We go on to putting those into, into words, right? We, we start making words out of those letters and, and then sentences, right? Sentences that have meaning with verb, nouns and verbs and direct objects. And, you know, we, and we start to build sentences. And, and then we write papers and even books. Like, we go on to some deep and rich and profound stuff that you're going to have to sit and do work, but it's all built on, you never move past the alphabet. I still know my ABCs. I'm using it right now to communicate with you. And so the gospel is that way. You never move past it. I can't communicate anything without it. The gospel is, is inherent in, in the whole thing, but you must build on it. And start making words and sentences and paragraphs. God has given us a wealth of rich, deep knowledge about himself. And you have to understand the Bible is a self-revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, God is revealing himself to his people. And here we have a, a rich, deep mind, a revelation of God himself to his people about his, his, his word, his commands, his ways, who he is and what he has done and who we are. And, and, it's, and it's a rich, deep gift to his church. And it takes a lifetime to know it and to assimilate it and to, and to begin to think like it. So we're making decisions like that. Some of the stuff you say, well, what's it, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the, you know, well, it has to do with how you relate to God. Do you understand those things shape the way you relate to who God is, to even know who he is? If you think I'm one thing, you know, you start having that, you know, you, you have to have an accurate self-knowledge about me just to know me well. I don't know what you're going to do with that knowledge, but if you want to know me, you need to know certain things. We need to know him. In fact, the more things we know about somebody, whether we do anything with that knowledge or not, is the better we know them. We're acquainted with them. The deeper the intimacy that is possible, the deeper the things we understand about them and that they've shared from their heart. For the Christian to know the spiritual alphabet is a blessing. Never, ever, ever move past it. But to only know the alphabet is a tragedy and a travesty. Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, says superficiality is a curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. If I can't get it in a week, I don't want it. You know, if I, gotta, if I, gotta, if I can't put it in and, and set it to 30 seconds, I'm... I'm I'll pull, you know, pull something out of the cabinet. I'll get a little Debbie. You know, <clears throat> we live in an age where the instant satisfaction and the idea of working at something for weeks and months and years and a lifetime doesn't compute in the same way. But my friends, that is the Christian life. It is a self-disciplined, shaped life of rhythms and habits did move us in the right direction. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people. We have tons of them. What we need are deep people. So what the author is pleading for in the passage is for, for some deep people who go to the fourth floor with them. 
right, who, who can, can keep up with him, who are, who are building on their knowledge so that as he teaches them more things, it, it takes them another, another story higher in their understanding and their depth. Mature people, people who apply themselves spiritually to the scriptures and to godliness. And so he <clears throat> takes training and discipline. That's what he says in verse 14. Solid food is for the mature. Who are the mature? For those who have their powers. I love that. Like, what are your powers? You know, can you leap tall buildings? What are your powers? We would think, he's got skills. What are your powers? He says, but the, the mature are those who have their powers. He says, trained by constant practice. That's the mature. Those who applied themselves over time, rhythmically, habitually, to certain things so they've grown strong and deep and rich in those things. To grow in understanding and spiritual wisdom. It's what Paul prays for the church in Colossians 1. He prays for the church that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Right? The knowledge of his will right, is here. And when he prays for that, he's not talking about a magical zapping of your mind that tomorrow, because he prayed for you, you would know the Old Testament. Right? He's not, not praying that God would zap them, but he's praying that as people who are people of the book, lovers of the book, lovers of his word, who are involved in all the places and ways that they can grow in their understanding of that word, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his word, not just as the accumulation of information, but in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that is the Spirit's work, to give that depth of understanding and wisdom so that our lives are shaped and changed and we walk in a manner that is worthy of him, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing and increasing and increasing in the knowledge of God. Growing to a, 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 an edifice that reaches into the heavens, into the very fullness of God he talks about in some places about spiritual depth. It involves training our powers, that is our ability to understand, our ability to discriminate, right? Truth from error, right? And that goes both intellectually in the sense of is, is God Trinity or not? Are Jehovah's Witnesses right or is Orthodox historical Christianity right? They deny the Trinity. Can you discern, right? So there is a certain amount we need to understand, get to the powers of discernment, truth from error, but that goes right down to the moral life because where it hits where we live even in more ways daily is we're, we're confronting a culture that is, that is moving at a top speed away from biblical morality and biblical worldview and moorings, and are we trained enough to be able to even have a conversation with them about what is true? Are we discerning ourselves? So many of our young people are so biblically illiterate that, that from 30 down, that, that more and more as they pull our young people, their morals conform to the patterns of this world. They work with people and they talk with people and they're assimilating their theology and building their theology by anecdotal stories and interactions of what people say and what people feel and how can that be wrong and how can that be? And they're just kind of feeling their way to what they think rather because they're not grounded. They don't know the word of God. They have not been trained, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice so that they are able to discern. And I'm afraid it's partly because we're not trained. 
We're not training. Are we in training so that we are able to articulate the truth with some clarity? He wants us to strive after godliness. Training, practicing, applying. That's what he says explicitly, 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 10. Train yourself for godliness. Train. There is the Greek word gymnazo. It's the word we get gymnastics from or gym, you know, or gymnasium, this idea. It's an athletic word. It's the place where you go to train, right? He says train yourself like, like an athlete. Join the gym. Join the, the spiritual gym. And it's hard. A lot of people don't want to go to gym. You know, it's like hard work. And so there are a lot of things in the life that we offer, ways that you could be trained and strengthened and deepened and understanding and so on. But I don't like going to the gym. Gym is hard. If somebody went to the gym with me, maybe I go to the gym. You know, or all the different ways that we struggle. It is hard. But he says, train yourself for godliness. Well, bodily training is of some value. That's the comparison. And it is of some value. Godliness is of a value in every way. For this life and the next life, and so to this end do we toil and we strive. Are you toiling? Are you striving? Or are you drifting? Adams, J. Adams says, godliness cannot be zapped. Godliness doesn't come that way. Discipline means work. It means sustained daily effort. The word Paul uses is the one from the, uh, which we get our English words gymnastics and gymnasium. They've been derived. This is a term that is clearly related to athletics, and the athlete becomes an expert only by years of hard practice, of applying themselves, and of working, and of sticking with it, of rhythms and habits, and doing it, and going day by day, and week by week. There are no instant athletes. And that's the word that he's using here in our passage in Hebrews. For those who have been trained by it. Sinclair Ferguson says, what do you need to slow down and go backwards in the Christian life? Nothing. Drifting is easy. Drifting is easy. It's the path of least resistance, right? And so what do we need? It's drifting. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's swimming against the tide that requires effort. And the Christian life is against the tide all the way. And as time goes by and as our culture goes in the way it is, we've got to swim harder and harder to, to stay ahead of the game, to not drift and be swallowed by the culture and its thinking and its morality. Spiritual weariness being sluggish is one of our greatest enemies. They were dull of hearing. They were sluggish of hearing. They did not apply themselves to understanding and godliness. And so what is very clear from this in verse 1 of chapter 6 is that God expects us to move on to maturity. Let us leave the elementary doctrine and go on to maturity, which he said back in 14, requires the powers, our powers, to be trained by constant practice. And so when he says, let us go on to maturity, he said, let's go on to self-disciplined, trained, constantly practicing, rhythmically habitual lives that are moving in this direction, swimming toward deeper and deeper and richer understanding and knowledge and fellowship and worship. It couldn't be more clear. We have to build on the foundation. 
He says it in so many ways, just a few quick samplings. 1 Corinthians 3.1, he says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And he's writing it to the church, a church that had a lot going on. And he says, it's hard for me. I'm having to write to you as not as spiritual people, but as infants in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 14, later in that same book, he said, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, yes, but, but in your thinking, he says, be mature. Train yourself by constant practice to train your powers of discernment and understanding according to a biblical worldview and pattern. Ephesians 4.14, why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind and doctrine, which I am afraid is happening more and more to our church in our culture. I say our church, to the church in America, in our culture, more and more to and fro by every wind and doctrine. Whatever else we do, God intends for us to pursue a growing and deepening life of understanding and godliness. And so Paul says in Philippians 3, there's one thing that I do, forgetting what lies behind. I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. That's the image of a runner. He's back to the athlete. One thing I do is I strain toward what is ahead. And I just ask you, as you think about your life and your habits and your rhythms and who you are, is that a picture of you? Is the, Paul, is the one thing that Paul says he does with all the other stuff he's got going on, he's got a bunch, but one thing that he does above all else is he's, he is running, straining to press on toward the goal of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ. He's after it with all that he is. Are you drifting or are you running? Straining. That's why Paul says in that first passage I read, he says, I do not run aimlessly. I say, do we? Do, do you run? Are you running aimlessly? Just here and there, picking up whatever, kind of drifting along. If you aim at nothing, they tell us you're sure to hit it. Are you running with spiritual purpose? With discernible progress, constant practice means habits, routines, rhythms, cultivating godly shape to our minds and our lives. The only way, Adam says, to become a godly person is to orient one's life toward godliness. And that means pattern by pattern. I sometimes think that we as Christians don't understand that it takes the whole life, that, it, that it's about everything. And the only way to be someone who is swimming upstream against our culture and really growing in, in their likeness and being more and more like Jesus in their understanding of the Scripture and who God is and their own lives and morality, that we don't understand that that actually takes a whole life that is oriented around God and His Word and knowing and loving and walking with Jesus, that it's a whole life thing. I said a couple of weeks ago, it's not a slice of a pie you know, it's kind of equal to the other pieces. I got my work piece and my relationship piece and my recreation piece, and I got a spiritual piece. I got a church piece. You know, it's not a piece of a pie. Jesus says, I'm the hub of the wheel, and all the spokes flow out of me. I'm at the center. Everything else depends on me and rolls on, on the strength of me at the center. Spiritual habits of reading and prayer, of education and training, of fellowship and worship, things that feed the mind, that feed the soul. Practical habits that keep our bodies in check, that keep the flesh in check, that help us to be healthy and strong. Everything matters. The use of time, the, our bedtime. You know, people say, I would like to get up in the morning, but, you know, getting up in the morning just depends on when you go to bed at night. 
Guarantee you. You go to bed earlier, you'll get up earlier. That's the trick. If you never figured it out, you want to get up in the morning, go to bed earlier. And do it over a long period of time. Train yourself. What are, you, what are the goals and things? It includes everything. It includes our diet. It includes our consumption of TV and reading and computer and phone habits. All of it involves, the Christian life involves sacrifice and self-denial. It says, Jesus, if you want to come after me, deny yourself daily and take up your cross to follow me. It's the only way to become a spiritual athlete running in the way of Jesus, right? It's a life that involves restrictions and inconvenience and the application of self. You take a hard look at your habits, your routines and rhythms. Figure out where you're drifting, where you need to run. Let me leave you with this last thought. Saying all of this, there is a danger. I've run this way for a period of time in my own life, and it will, it will destroy you. If you take what I said today and go home, say, I'm just going to run like an athlete, and the Lord is going to, you know, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to accomplish it, and I'm going to make it happen, and I'm going <clears> to, <throat> which I did for many years. The only problem is like a gerbil on one of those wheels. Uh, I just wasn't working for me until at some point. It's just like, oh, Lord, what, what? And the answer is this, godliness, my friends, is unattainable through human effort. You can't do it. You can't, you can't create your own clean heart. You can't make yourself grow spiritually. You, you, can't, you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You, you can't accomplish it. You don't have that. That's one of the powers you don't have. That righteousness and godliness are God's gift to us. And human striving is not sufficient to achieve it. But while human striving is not sufficient to achieve it, human striving is not irrelevant to it. And it's just getting those things in in proper balance, understanding that, that it can't be accomplished by human striving doesn't mean we don't strive. Right? And so what am I talking about? It's a couple of things. So J. Oswald Sanders, you may know his name, or certain things that we must do for ourselves. God's not going to do them for us. Well, the motto, let go and let God, emphasizes one aspect of the truth, which is I can't attain it on my own. God must do it. It can be a dangerous half-truth and induce an unwholesome passivity. Self-discipline and perseverance are essential. They are essential ingredients to a growing Christian life. And so here's the thing, godliness is unattainable through human effort, but it's also unattainable without human effort. And those two things have to be held together. I was talking to some folks in our small group on Wednesday nights, and I said, here's my understanding of the spiritual life. It is 100% God, and it is 100% you. Right? You're, not, you're never out of the equation. Oh, you add God to the equation and never leave him out of the equation, but never leave yourself out either. Never think the responsibility doesn't sit upon us. And so here's the thing. It's like 1 Corinthians 3, 7. Paul says this. Neither he he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Planters and waterers are nothing. Athletes who train and coach and do whatever you could say are nothing. Only God can give the growth. Only God can give the growth. But you see the paradox in the statement, though, because Paul dedicated his entire life to planting and watering. He didn't not plant and water. Oh, God gives the growth. I'll just go sit in my living room and watch TV. Because God's going to do it, right? And this is this unbiblical uh, divorcing of things that God has married. Only 
The one who plants and waters is nothing. Only God gives the growth. So go and plant and water knowing that God gives growth and that he meets us in the midst of it and in his grace and by the presence and power of the Spirit that is with us. He accomplishes mighty things. And so it makes us people of prayer and dependence and worship and never thinking that we're anything because we're disciplined or we worked hard or we're this or that, which is just your job, by the way, that we don't think we're anything. That always it rebounds to God's glory and God's praise, trusting him and seeking from him what we need. Paul, Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Run. Discipline yourself. Train seriously with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who is at work within you to will and to do work because God is working. Strive because God gives growth. The presence of the Spirit does not do away with the need for a disciplined life. The presence of the Spirit empowers a disciplined life. After all, self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us enough to, uh, to tell us the truth about ourselves and to give us this word which in many ways can sting and, 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 and drive us to our knees. And I pray, Father, that that's what this text and this sermon would do, but drive us to our knees, that we might seek from you what only comes from you, but that we would rise again to our feet full of the Spirit and run. Oh, teach us to run. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.